So we're in the process this month of asking questions. We're asking five questions trying to figure out how do we orient our lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ, around the good news of Jesus Christ. And so our series is creatively entitled Five Questions. All right? And so we've been asking these questions and trying to figure out how do we orient our lives around the good news of Jesus in our lives and other people's lives. It's like, how do we ask these questions to ourselves? How do we ask these questions to other people so that their life also becomes oriented around the good news of Jesus Christ? That's what we're trying to do. And so question number one, we asked about three weeks ago or so. What was question number one? Yeah, yeah. What's your story? Right? Every Christ follower has one. Every person has one. And God gives us that story of faith in Christ to be able to share that with somebody else. What's your story? What's question number two? Who's your wingman? How are you doing with that? Anybody making progress? Yeah, good. Oh, good. Because if not, I was going to give that talk again today. All right, so who's your wingman? That's the idea of nobody's designed to live this Christian life alone. We are designed to go with others in this journey. And so how do we do that with someone else, a couple of someone else's, whatever, someone who will come along outside of us, and when we stumble, they're there for us. And when we're doing well and they stumble, we're there for them. That's how that works. Who's your wingman? Question number three, last week. Where's your faith? The idea of this question is every one of us as a follower of Jesus was designed to progress, to make progress in the Christian life. And unfortunately, some of us, we come into the church and we sort of, we get a connection with Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus, and then we sort of just stop right there. We keep coming to church, we just kind of do the weekly church thing, but we just get stuck right there. And the Christian life was never designed for sticking right there. You put your faith in Christ, and then you grow forward from there. And the goal is that every day of your life, every step of your life, you're moving forward with Christ. Now, the truth is, sometimes we back up a bit, and then we got to go forward again. That's just life. That's normally how it goes. But we're making progress in this thing called faith. You have to ask yourself the question, where's your faith? Where's my faith in this journey with Jesus? And, and so one of the questions I ask myself in line with that is, Am I putting myself in situations, in settings where I have to live by faith? I remember when Don and I moved up here to Folsom 25 years ago now, one of the things we were praying to God was, God, we don't want to live this comfortable Christian life in this little Christian bubble where it's all just nice and wonderful and comfortable all the time. It's like, I want to live by faith. And that's hard for us because we all want the comfortable life. And the life of faith is not always comfortable. There are times when God stretches us and he moves us and he pulls us forward. To make progress with him. And so where's your faith? And where are you putting yourself in a situation where you have to trust God for what's next in your life? And that brings me to question number four. Now question number four comes from, the concept comes from an ancient Hebrew command an ancient Hebrew law that God gave to the people of Israel. It's found in Leviticus chapter 19 Verse 18, it's kind of short, so if you just want to write that one down, you can look it up later or you can catch up with me as, you, as we go along. But let me read this. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, what he's trying to get to is he says, This is who I am. I'm the Lord. I'm God. I am your God. And because of who I am in the universe and because of who I am in your life, I expect you to follow this command. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. Pretty simple, right? Pretty clear? Is that one clear? Yeah, it's clear. Is it simple? Yes, it is. It's just that we find loopholes. We are loophole finders. We are loophole seekers, right? Whenever there's a law, it's like, oh, I wonder if I can get around that one. I mean, we do that all the time. Americans do it. The world does it. Human beings do it. We are loophole seekers. And for, and for the last 3,500, 4,000 years since God gave this command to the people of Israel, human beings have been finding loopholes around it. Even Jesus knew that people were looking for loopholes around this law. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So many of you have heard this before. But here's a statement that Jesus makes about the loophole seekers in this world, including us. Matthew 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Has anyone ever taught you that? I mean, in our, in our culture, in our world, in Sunday school, or, you know, we're in your small group, has anyone ever taught you, hey, the right thing to do in this world is love your neighbor, but hate your enemy? Have you ever been taught that? One person, and he's making it up. I mean, no one teaches that in our culture. Maybe they teach that in other cultures, but here's the deal. When Jesus came along, he changed the rules for us. He changed the game for us. Jesus Christ is a game changer all the way across history, all the all throughout society, Jesus Christ is the game changer. Every religion up until the time Jesus came taught you should love your neighbor, but it's right and just to hate your enemy. And we go, that's appalling, that's shocking. The reason you think that's appalling is because you've been trained by 2,000 years of Jesus' teaching. But the rabbis were teaching Sure, love your neighbor, that's the law. Oh, and hate your enemy, that's the right thing to do. That's justice. And the, and the Jewish rabbis were teaching it, and the pagan philosophers were teaching it. Everyone was teaching something along the lines of love your neighbor, hate your enemy. John Ortberg um, wrote a book that I just recently finished, and it's shattered some of my thinking about how much Jesus has influenced this world uh, The book is called, Who Is This Man? And uh, he writes this. It's a little bit of a long story, so hang with me as I read this for you. He says, In Bath, England, at the hot springs that formed a combination spa-slash-Roman worship center 2,000 years ago, scores of prayers have been excavated that ancients paid to have written down and offered there. Did you follow all that? It's kind of a long sentence, right? So, so they're paying people to, to write down these prayers and then to pray them for them to these pagan gods that they were worshiping, all right? And so then he goes on. They are called curse tablets because by far the most common kind of prayers was a curse. You would never imagine that. But the common prayers in the pagan world before Christ came were prayers of cursing. People would give the name of someone who hurt them, tell what their crime was, then specify how they wanted the gods to harm them. Here's an example. Quote, Dosimedes has lost two gloves. He asks that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. Close quote. Ortberg says, no matter how much you love your gloves, this seems a little harsh. 
A more eloquent example of these prayers discovered all over the ancient Mediterranean world comes from a cursed tablet in Rome. Quote, I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucharios the charioteer and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come from behind and pass, but instead let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up and let him drag behind, both in the early races and the later ones. Now, now, quickly, amen. (laughs) Curse tablets. Because that's how they used to pray before Jesus came. Because you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And Jesus changed the game. The reason you never hear anyone advocate that in this world today, 2,000 years after Jesus came, is because Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. Again, verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Ortberg asks, Do you know how many bless my enemy tablets have been found? Zero. Jesus changed the game on that. And he calls us and he says, I want you to love your neighbor and I want you to love your enemy. Regardless of the cost. Now the story that we use to remember that, that Jesus told is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10. Most of you have have heard of this story, heard something about the story. Maybe some of you know it very well. But the story kind of goes like this. There's a lawyer that comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, as he was prone to do, turned it back on him and he asked him a question. He says, well, what's in the law? How does it read to you, Mr. Lawyer? And so this legal expert says, well, I see two things. He says, I see the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the other thing is, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, bingo, ding, 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 you win. Nice job. If you can do that, you will live. But the man knew that he needed a loophole. And so he said to justify himself, he said, yeah, but that whole thing about the neighbor, you know, that's really hard to do. So help me out here, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? And Luke says he was trying to justify his own life because he didn't always love his neighbor. And so he says, you tell me, who's my neighbor? And in response to that, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. This man gets beat up, robbed, beat up, left half dead on the side of the road. A priest comes by, sees him, and passes around on the other side of the street. A Levite, a, a religious leader, comes down the road, sees him, passes by on the other side of the street. Finally, a Samaritan comes down the road. The Samaritan is the hated enemy. And a Samaritan comes down the road, sees the Jewish man bleeding in the road, picks him up, bandages him up, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, pays for the man's 
needs for his medical care, for his food, for the service provided for him. Pays for it, says, I'll pay anything else when I get back. Just take care of him. And at the end, Jesus changes the question. Because the lawyer said, who's my neighbor? To, to that man, Jesus said, to whom can you be a neighbor? See, Jesus changed the game. The question is not, who is my neighbor? That's a justifying question. That helps limit my options, limit my responsibilities. But when the command is, or the question is, to whom can you be a neighbor? Now the game is changed. Jesus said to us, it is our calling to be a neighbor to the people around us. And it just seems to me when I'm thinking about this, if my calling is to be a neighbor, then I, I just kind of feel like the, the first place or the best place to practice being a neighbor is in my neighborhood. Does that make sense to everybody? That just seems like the place to start, right? It's like I live in a neighborhood. I'm, I'm kind of there. It's like best place for me to begin practicing being a neighbor is in my neighborhood. Yeah, but we are loophole seekers, aren't we? So maybe we should define our neighborhoods. Maybe we should think about what a neighborhood is a little bit. Uh, I did some research in the dictionary just trying to figure out what a neighborhood is and they describe neighborhoods in several ways. Here's, here's dic- dictionary definition number one of a neighborhood. A neighborhood is an area or region around or near some place or thing. I'm like, who writes this stuff? How did you get to be a dictionary writer? That's too many ors to make that. a def- Doesn't definition mean narrow it down? You put all those ors in, you expanded it out. That's not helpful. Next definition. Neighborhood is a vicinity, nearness, or proximity. Okay, I get that part. That, that just means somebody's close to you. Right? I told you a couple of weeks ago, you guys all sit in the same section every week. You guys moved up a little bit, right? So I, you know, it's kind of how it goes. I, I know you sit right there. You guys sit back there. I said a couple of weeks ago, why don't you just make a small group out of your neighborhood? You already sit together. You already like each other. You're already near each other. That's proximity. You're a neighborhood. You're a neighborhood. You're a neighborhood back there. You guys... You know, it's a neighborhood. You're close to one another. That's a definition. You ought to know the neighbors. Okay. (laughs) Move it on, Pastor Brad. Okay. Definition number three. A neighborhood is a number of persons living near one another. Okay, that's sort of our basic definition of neighborhood, isn't it? It's a number of persons living near one another. So... One of the ways we can define neighborhood for us is in our culture, in this culture here, maybe not in every place, but in our culture here, we have like subdivisions. We have housing tracks. And so, you know, I live in a certain housing development. That's my neighborhood. That's where I live. Willow Creek East, it's about a mile and a half from here. That's my neighborhood. And it's just, it's a place where they built a bunch of houses in the same little area. It's pretty well defined, right? That's one way to define a group of people who live near me. We've done another thing at Lakeside Church. We've said, you know, there are neighborhoods that the school district has already defined for us. Every one of us lives near an elementary school. And we just kind of decided if the city can say, here's where the the neighborhoods are that feed into this elementary school, that elementary school sort of becomes a hub of a neighborhood. In Folsom, there are 10 elementary schools. There are 10 neighborhoods identifiable neighborhoods. We know where they are. We know, actually, we know who lives in them. I mean, you know, 
You didn't want me to know that I know where you live. Well, we do. We know where you live, right? You, you connect those cards. You do connect cards and all that stuff. Okay, we know where you live. Sorry. But you live, you live in a neighborhood with other lakesiders. You live in a neighborhood with other Christ followers around that school. Now, everybody lives in Folsom. You live near an elementary school. That's a neighborhood. If you live, for us, we do it a little bit. If you're farther out from Folsom, we have a little bit bigger, you know, scope of the neighborhood. So in El Dorado Hills, we count it by middle schools. That are, you know, it's a little bigger district. In uh, Cameron Park, we kind of go by the high school. So it's pre- pretty much your neighborhood. If you live in Cameron Park, from Lakeside's perspective, it's the whole town of Cameron Park. You know, it gets bigger um, as our reach goes out. But we just figured that's a way to define a neighborhood. And we're trying to figure out how do we do, how do we love the neighborhoods around us in those schools? Now, I've got another way to define a neighborhood. I've told you this one before. And uh, it's kind of, it's, it's getting into my heart. It's changing the way I think about the, how I live in this world. I have a mailbox neighborhood. That's, that's my mailbox right there. How about that? That's, that's one attractive thing to sit out in front of your house, right? It's, it's, but that's mine. And there are, there are 16 numbered boxes on that thing. Now, I, don't, I think we only have 14 houses that actually use that box, you know. So there's 14 houses in my mailbox neighborhood. It's pretty clear who they are. It's not hard to count them even. I can count that high, you know. 14 men plus women and children in my neighborhood. Or, you, you know, 14 women plus men and children. I don't care how you want to count it, but there's 14 families in my neighborhood like that. That's the people that are living near me or around me, according to that definition. Fourth definition of a neighborhood. A neighborhood is a district or locality, often with reference to its character or inhabitants. In other words, that definition says every neighborhood has a character. Do you know whose yours is? I mean, right? You could take that two ways, couldn't you? Every neighborhood has a character. Right, there's two ways to say that. That means every neighborhood has a person who is a character, like the character of the neighborhood. You know who that is? If they're in your row, don't, don't look at them. But, you know, so most neighborhoods have a character, but they all have a character. Every neighborhood has a character. And it's interesting, if you go through the scriptures, you'll find that there are some statements in the book of Acts where Paul visited, the apostle Paul visited various neighborhoods. And every neighborhood that he visited came with a description of the character of that neighborhood. It's fascinating. If you, if you, I'm not going to read these, but if you want to write these down and look up in the book of Acts later on this week, in Acts chapter 16, for example, Paul visits the town of Philippi. Now, some of the places Paul went were cities, big cities, and some of them were sort of little villages, but they were all basically a neighborhood, and they had the character of a neighborhood. So, Paul goes to Philippi, and he finds out that down at the river in Philippi, there were some people gathering together. There weren't enough Jewish people to create a synagogue there, so the people who were seeking God, they went down to the river, and they had a prayer meeting at the river, and Paul went down there and taught them next to the river, and there were people actually in the neighborhood who were seeking God. Sometimes the character of specific neighborhoods among us are characterized by people who are seeking God. They're curious about God. And maybe that's your neighborhood. Maybe your neighborhood could be characterized by people who are seeking God. You go, I don't really know if it is or not. It's like that's why we have to practice loving our neighborhood. Because a lot of us don't even know what the character of our neighborhood is. 
In Acts 17, Paul left Philippi and he went on to a, a neighborhood called Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, some people quickly believed in Jesus through Paul's message, and other people became hostile to the message. In fact, they began to harass and to persecute Paul and his companions who were bringing the good news to the people of Thessalonica. And sometimes that's true in our neighborhoods today. Sometimes a neighborhood might be characterized by being hostile to the gospel. Last spring, we were doing these Love Your Neighborhood desserts, remember? And we were going to all the elementary schools, and we were hosting the Lakeside family in their neighborhood, at their school. And we said, let's just come together. Let's talk about how do we begin to reach this neighborhood. And Steve Wright is helping us to, to launch that forward and keep moving the whole process of that forward. And we found in, in that whole process, we're working in 10 neighborhood, uh, 15 neighborhoods, 10 in Folsom, one in Orangevale, a couple in Eldorado Hills, and a couple in Cameron Park. I think that's how it breaks down. And if you live outside of those boundaries, you can do the same thing in your neighborhood. That's fine. But we're kind of targeting 15. We found out that there are about five neighborhoods around us, those elementary school neighborhoods, five neighborhoods that are really interested in having the church be an influence there. They welcomed us. They invited us in. They gave us hospitality because they want the good news of Christ to be among them. That's amazing. We found there are about five other neighborhoods that are sort of lukewarm, sort of like, well, whatever, we'll let you use our place, pay us the rent, we'll be happy, you'll be happy, it'll be fine. And then there are about five neighborhoods who are pretty much, no, we don't really want you here. And we don't want your story, and we don't want your God, and we don't want you to come among us. And it was hard to get into those neighborhoods to be able to, to have even a lakeside neighborhood party there. That's how it was in Thessalonica. They were, they, were, they were a neighborhood that was hostile to the good news of Jesus. Paul left there and he went to another neighborhood called Berea. It says of them, the character of the neighborhood of Berea is that they were, more, they were, of, they were of more noble character in Berea. In other words, they listened and they dialogued and they had a conversation about this message that Paul was bringing to them. And I think about our neighborhoods here. Maybe, maybe you're in a neighborhood that's noble-minded, and maybe they're interested in the Bible. And if you were to say to your neighbors, hey, we're going to host a, a neighborhood Bible study on Thursday nights here just for our mailbox neighborhood. Would any of you like to come? You might find some people that are noble-minded that would say, I'd like to come to that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Paul went on from there, and he went to Athens, another neighborhood, big city, but another neighborhood. Athens was described in Acts chapter 17 as a town where the people did nothing else but to sit around and talk about new ideas. That was the life of an Athenian in those days. Just sit around and talk about new ideas. You might be in a neighborhood that's sort of intellectually wired. Maybe the thing to offer as an act of love to your, to your community, to your neighborhood, maybe it would be to say, let's have a book club. And maybe in the process of having a book club, everybody in the club gets a chance to say, this is the book we're going to read this month. And maybe in your club, there'll be someone who says, I want to read a book that's really anti-Christian. And maybe it's offensive to you, but because you say, I'm going to be noble-minded also, you read the book with them and you engage in dialogue with them. But when it comes around to your turn to say, I want to pick this book, maybe you pick a Christian-oriented book or a book written by a Christian author, and they... they act with a noble mind to you, and they say, I'll listen to your book as well, and I'll engage with you in that book as well. And they're intellectually wired. And their noble mind, they say, I'll, I'll engage in this with you. Maybe starting a book club would be useful as a way to love people in your neighborhood. From Athens, Paul moved on to a neighborhood called Corinth in Acts chapter 8. 
in Corinth, he found a blue-collar neighborhood. He found people there that were working with their hands. They were making tents. And Paul, in his trade as a craftsman, his job was tent-making. And so he connected with these other tent makers. They were blue-collar workers working with their hands. Corinth is known as as a neighborhood that was known for gluttony and for alcoholism and for sexual abuse. Sexual abuses. Maybe the best way to love that neighborhood would have been to start an AA group for them. Or a celebrate recovery ministry for them. And maybe in your neighborhood, that's the best thing you could do for your neighborhood. Because you, you find out there's all kinds of addiction problems in your neighborhood. And you might be able to love them by doing something like that. See, every neighborhood has a character. Which leads to question number four. Which is simply, how's your neighborhood? How is your neighborhood? When you find out how your neighborhood is, then you can ask the question, what could be a catalyst for the gospel in this neighborhood? Or you could ask, how can I actually go through the process of loving the people in my neighborhood? But you have to learn how they are to be able to do that. How's your neighborhood? How do I practice love toward my neighbors? How do you practice love toward your neighbors? There's a passage in Colossians chapter 4 that I love that is really challenging to me. But I, I just find it helpful and um, useful but challenging. Colossians chapter 4 verse 5. It's a description of how to love your neighbors. He says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's a beautiful statement about how to love our neighbors. Number one, he says, be wise toward outsiders. Be wise toward people that are not part of your group. Be wise toward people that are not part of your small group, your lakeside small group. Be be wise toward people that are not part of your family. Be wise toward people that are not part of your circle. Not part of your path. Be wise toward them. Use wisdom. Of course, that comes from the scriptures. Be wise toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That's a description of what it means to be wise. You are wise when you take advantage of opportunities with your neighbors. Just like you are wise when you take advantage of opportunities to invest in this world. Or to invest in the next world. That takes wisdom. He says you're wise with your your neighbors... If you make the most of every opportunity with them, literally it means to buy up the opportunities, to buy them up, to never let an opportunity go by, to never miss an opportunity. You ever miss opportunities with people? I do. I miss opportunities with people. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm like, maybe you're like this. The next day, I'm like, oh, this would have been perfect. This, I should have said this. 24 hours too late. And you know what I found is the Maybe the number one reason why I miss opportunities with other people, where, I, where I, I could have had something very kind to say, I could have had something very loving to say, very loving to do. You know why I miss those opportunities? It's because of the next thing that Paul says in this passage. He says, let your words be always filled with grace. Let your words be always filled with grace. And I 
find that my words are not always filled with grace. I've learned, most of the time, I've learned to put a hand over my mouth. So they don't always come out of my mouth. But what I find is when, when my graceless words are in my heart, that I miss opportunities. Let your words be filled with grace. Let your words be filled with blessing. Let your words be filled with kindness. Let your words be filled with generosity to others. And when your words are filled with that, when your heart is filled with that, when your mind is filled with that toward others, you will not miss opportunities. Years ago, Donna and I had a friend. Her name uh, was Barb. And she had this amazing ability with her words to let her words be filled with grace. This, we, we knew Barb way back in the early 80s when I was going to seminary. And so this is like a 30-year-old story, but I, I will never forget it. This was in the days when um, weird hair was just getting started. I mean, I guess there was weird hair back in the 70s or 60s, 50s. I guess there's been weird hair all along, right? But the style had changed, and it wasn't my style. And so that we were standing in a pizza restaurant one day. Donna and I and Barb, I think we're all there together, and we're, we're, uh, just, we're getting ready to order a pizza and stuff, and this guy walks in, and this was when the time when they were starting to do the real tall mohawks with color. I mean, today we go like, that's really cool, that's amazing. But in my, in my world at that time, I was judgmental. Today I, I go, it's just hair. In those days, I had all these thoughts in my heart that were not mm, grace-filled. And as soon as I saw him, and I, you know, I, I, was, I was desperate in those days, the same as I am today. I'm desperate to try and bring the good news of Jesus into a conversation, into a relationship. You know, I'm trying to bring people to faith in Christ. I want to do that. But all that's in my heart toward this young man is judgment. And so I got this question when I saw this dude. I've got this question in my mind, and it's dying to pop out of my mouth, and I've just about physically got a hand over my mouth so I don't ask this question. But my question that I wanted to ask this guy was, why do you do that? And at the moment I was clamping my mouth not to say, why do you do that? My friend Barb blurts out with this question, how do you do that? And I looked at her and I was like, what planet are you from? How did, how did you do that? And she asked this grace-filled question to this young man. And he told her. And they had a conversation. And she was able to live out the love of Christ to that man. While I'm over in the corner going. <laughs> and wrestling with my own unkind, ungrace-filled thoughts. And I miss opportunities because my Speech and my thoughts are not always filled with grace. And frankly, that kills me. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you'll let God's grace permeate your own heart and shape your own heart, shape your thoughts and shape your words. He says, let your words always be filled with grace so that you will know how to answer each person. See, if your heart was filled with grace, if your words were filled with grace, you would know how to respond to each person who's your neighbor. 
Let your words always be filled with grace, seasoned with salt. What is that about? Seasoned with salt. And I'm trying to think back through the scriptures and go, where does salt come in in the scripture? Where does God describe us with salt or those kinds of things? And there's this place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says it to us. He says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. You are. He says, let your speech be filled with grace and filled with your story. When your speech is filled with salt or seasoned with salt, it's got little bits of your story sprinkled into it. So when your words are words of grace towards someone else, what are you asking? You're just asking them, what's your story? My friend Barb, when she talked to this guy with the hair, really what she was saying was, what's your story? How do you do that? When you ask, what's your story to someone else, you are pouring grace into their lives. Everybody wants someone who will listen to their story. Every time you ask someone to tell your story, you are giving them grace. You are filling your speech with grace. And then when you sprinkle parts of your story into it, you're seasoning that with salt. When you do that, you will know how to respond to the people in your lives. And that's a process of learning to love our neighbor. Now, you take that and work on that, it will shape the way you love your neighbor. I want to give you some more practical ways, though, as well. I don't want just this to be something out there. You just go, oh, that was a nice talk. I want this to change how we live this year. So how's your neighborhood? How's it going in the cubicle row near you at Intel, if that's where you work? How's it going in, your, in, the, in the high school where you're a teacher at the high school or the elementary school where you're a teacher or a custodian at the elementary school? How's it going in your neighborhood where you work? We have our high school students uh, who meet over in the block on Saturday nights. Uh, they're hosting this Friday night a, an event called Fifth Quarter. It's after the football games, and it's our high school students who are inviting their friends from Folsom High School and Vista Del Lago High School and Oak Ridge High School and maybe some others around, and they're saying, you guys are our neighbors. Come over to the block. We're going to throw a big party for you and invite you to come in. Let's have a good time together. And they're practicing loving their neighbors. How's your neighborhood? And how are you going to love your neighborhood? Every year, for years, I don't know how many years we've done this, but every year, for a long time, we have hosted a Halloween party at Lakeside Church. We've called it a harvest festival, a harvest party, Lakeside at Halloween, Halloween at Lake. We call it all kinds of different things, but it happens on October 31st every year. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Thank you. We're not going to do a Halloween party at Lakeside this year. Oh, I, I, I should have given you more heads up with that one. Hang with me. Here it comes. Two reasons we're not doing that. Number one, we're doing the block party, and we're taking all the resources from Halloween, and we're putting them on September 30th instead of October 31st. So bring the friends you would have brought to Halloween at Lakeside. Bring them to the block, or the, the block party at Lakeside. Okay? That's how we're doing that. But the more important reason we're not doing a Halloween party at Lakeside Church this year is because we're trying to take that right back into our neighborhoods. It's been years since I've been home on Halloween. And so when my neighbor kids come and knock on my door, it's the one time a year they get to knock on my door and ask for stuff, you know? And we say, hey, that's nice. Here's a lot of stuff, you know? And they get to come to my house, and I'm never there for them. Now, they, a lot of them come here, and that's all, it's all been wonderful. I'm not down on anything we've done, not one single bit. But when we started Lakeside Church 25 years ago, I would go door to door through neighborhoods, 
and I would knock on the doors of neighborhoods. And I would, what I would do is I'd take gifts, little gifts out, little notepads that said Lakeside Church, you know, in our service times. And the, in the next month, I'd give a refrigerator magnet that said Lakeside Church in our service times. And you know, the next time, I'd take a jar grip thing, you know, and it said Lakeside Church, get a grip, come to Lakeside, you know, something. <laughs> and I'd go to these doors in, in these neighborhoods, and I'd go three different times to the doors in one neighborhood. And I can go to, you know, so many houses in a neighborhood. And in a year, I might be able to make it to four neighborhoods, three months at each one. I'd go to four different neighborhoods. I was all by myself doing that. Look at this. Virtually every neighborhood in Folsom has a yard sign that says, Come to Lakeside Church's block party. Virtually every neighborhood. And do you know what God has given us at this stage in our church's life? He's given us not just one person who's going through a neighborhood door to door and going, You know, can I give you something from our church? He's given us a church filled with people who love their God and love their neighborhood and are just trying to find a way to show that. And I don't have to go door-to-door through neighborhoods anymore. We can. Folsom is almost four times the size it was in 1987 when Lakeside Church began. It wasn't possible for me to go to every neighborhood then. It's impossible to go to every neighborhood now. Except that God solved that problem for us with you, with us. And you live in a neighborhood. Here's what I'm doing. I haven't even told my wife this yet, but here it comes, Donna. Uh, in our neighborhood, on our, our mailbox neighborhood, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wheel my barbecue out on Halloween night. You know, this is not original. Some of you have done this, right? I'm going to buy a bunch of hot dogs and Cokes and stuff, and I'm going to wheel my my barbecue out there, and I'm just going to go around to my neighbors and say, hey, you know, when you get home on Halloween, your kid's going to want to get out, and you're going to be in a hurry. You're not going to have time to cook dinner. It's like, come to my house. I'll feed you guys all hot dogs, give you a soda, and then you go on your merry way and, and trick-or-treat. I'm just going to try and love my neighborhood. I'm just going to try it. I'm going to bring Halloween into my neighborhood again this year. What, what can you do with that? Some of you go, that, that would be hard. I don't, I don't know how I would do that. It's like, well, that's, be, that's because you forgot question number two. Who's your wingman? And you know what to do once you get people there at your driveway, because then you have this other question, question number one, right? You have that, oh, what's your story? You go, yeah, but I could never do that. That's really frightening. That's question number three. Where's your faith? These are life-changing questions. Last year, Donna and I hosted a party at Christmas with our mailbox neighborhood. Just went around and invited everybody from our mailbox neighborhood to come to our house for an open house for Christmas. We had most of our neighbors come over. It was amazing. Not one person knew all the neighborhood in a 14-house block. Not one. They were so grateful that I invited them over so they could get to know their neighbors. How do you love your neighborhood? How's your neighborhood? How do you love them? And what difference would it make in the kingdom of God if you would do it? Jesus, I pray for us. Lord, I, I don't believe that my ideas here are the most creative ideas in the world. I believe there are people here who have fantastic ideas about how to love their neighbors, how to love their neighborhood. My prayer, Lord, is that with whatever level of creativity you give us, that you would build this amazing love into our heart for the people that live in proximity to us, that work in proximity to us, 
who play on the same sports teams as us, and they are our neighbors. And may we begin the process of loving our neighbors. And Lord, maybe some of those are our enemies. Maybe our neighbors are our enemies. Would you give us the capacity to love them as well, as you have done for us? Lord, thank you for these things. We seek you out so that you would shape our lives as lovers of our neighbors. Amen.